Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. All right, welcome back to the podcast. I am super excited to have Anna on today. You guys probably saw her on BS and Beer a couple of weeks ago, but um, with my mission to highlight other women in the industry, I thought it would be great to have her come back on and tell you a little bit more about her experience and what she's up to. So Anna, tell us who you are and uh, what you've been up to. Sure. Uh, so my name is Anna. I work for Maine Passive House in the Western Foothills up near Bethel. Um, we build passive constructions, as you could imagine, mostly residential. Uh, I've worked there for three and a half to four years now. And I started as an apprentice with absolutely no building experience. And then now I'm working as a site supervisor, carpenter, project manager blend. So still on the job, still working hard, just also thinking about work when I leave work now. (laughs) (laughs) That's the unfortunate downside to moving up in position as it goes home with you too. Yep. Yep. So that's, it's really cool to hear that you started with zero experience. So first of all, the company that you work for was like, sure, we'll hire you. We'll train you. (laughs) Right. So that's a hard thing in the construction industry right now, because a lot of people are so busy. They're really looking for people that have more experience, but we spent so little time training the other people, right. That there aren't people that have experience. So it's pretty awesome that, um, that you kind of jumped in with no experience. What was your background beforehand? You said one day, I'm going to go work in construction. <laughs> oh, well, um, I guess I went to college. I studied chemistry, uh, weird tangent, um, and then decided I really didn't want to do lab work. Uh, and there was this really awesome program where you could do three years at a liberal arts, two years at an engineering school and get two bachelors. Um, so I transferred to an environmental engineering degree and went to South Korea and worked for a company trying to like pitch real estate investment in green buildings. Uh, And through them, met a bunch of really awesome people, built a thesis for my last year in engineering school, and then um, focused my senior year on building energy. Um, So when I finished, I moved back home very briefly and was thinking to myself, I really, I want to be in buildings. I don't know how to do this. I would love to design them. I would love to do all that, but I have no idea how to even build a building. Uh, so maybe I should start there. Uh, and when I started Googling passive houses in Maine, of course, Maine passive house is the first thing that shows up. So I called up my boss and he spoke to me for an hour and, and just was like, you know, we've been, we've been talking about hiring a woman for a while. Uh, and we can take on an apprentice right now. Why don't you move out here? So it just kind of all lined up. It was just awesome. sort of clicked. That is really cool. Um, interestingly enough, if I hadn't gotten into architecture school, I would have gone to school for chemistry as well. So we're really? wondering if there's what? some kind of weird <laughs> tie to building science and liking chemistry as a science. Weird. I don't know. It, it was very strange. I, that, that was my, that was my secondary plan. If I had not gotten into architecture school, um, that's what I would have done. And I love that you traveled. Um, I think 
other countries have a lot to teach us just like we have you know to teach other people but like passive house is a german standard Mm -hmm. like in germany they just decided like hey we got to do something about this. And so, um, and yet a lot of our mechanical systems come from, you know, Japan and other, like, it's just, it's so cool to see what other, what other countries are doing and then be able to apply that here. So, um, so kudos to you for having two degrees also. Uh, Thanks. (laughs) But but then going back and saying, well, what am I going to do with this degree? Um, that was actually something that that I can't remember if it was Kiona on her podcast had said, but, you know, just said I had this degree and then nobody really told me what to do after that. Like, where do I go? How do I get into construction? And I think, unfortunately, too many people think construction is what you do if you can't do anything else, which is a really Mm -hmm. poor way to look at construction. There's so much more to it, which is engaging and exciting. And I think going into schools and getting to kids at younger ages and just saying, Hey, you like math? Well, that might be a really great construction tool or it's art. I mean, it's beautiful when it's done well, like there's so much to be said for craftsmanship that, you know, that that's a trade. That's a thing. And also after talking to Ben Bogey, um, a number of times, you know, he said, I didn't think I liked all this stuff. Like I was terrible at school. I just didn't think when we don't describe science in terms of, of building, of practical things, of applications that people might really, really enjoy. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, I was terrible at science in school. There's no way I would like that. Well, maybe if they explained it, like I didn't love calculus until I took structures where I was like, Oh, I see how I'm applying this calculus. This makes so much more sense. (laughs) you know otherwise there's just a bunch of numbers and some context yeah yeah so for sure so I think it's really cool but as part of that it sounds like you've been teaching uh some workshops and classes so tell us a little bit about your first workshop and then other workshops that you have coming up sure um so this is a collaboration between the Center for Ecology-Based Economy, which is a nonprofit in Norway, um, and they're really focused on building a resilient uh, ecosystem, basically, um, and also with Maine Passive House. Uh, and the way the workshops are going to be formulated is there's always going to be a host organization that has all the tools and has a space for it to happen. And then there's going to be a partner, community partner, who can help bring in people from more diverse communities to participate in the workshop um, and communicate with those people about what their projects should be. What should we build together? What would be most useful for these communities? Um, so the first one, the pilot uh, was last fall. Um, Oxford county was still in the yellow um so we masked up we took temperatures we were like super cautious about it and we were working in main passive houses uh workshop which is this barn we've we've recently renovated uh in bryant pond but before it was the framing and sheathing boards with like half inch gaps everywhere so we were like oh it's well ventilated we're okay so we we brought a bunch of women together i think it was 16 women um and the the workshop was taught by five women in the community um, myself my coworker katrina uh and then my mother who is a homeowner and a home builder and her father was a carpenter um and two women from the community in Norway and Otisfield, Diana and Seal, and 
the two of them have built really awesome houses um, for themselves. Seals is a straw bale house. Um, and so the five of us came together. Katrina and I are the only ones like practicing carpentry regularly, but, but we were able to lead these women in creating building sawhorses and then we did a start to finish here's your plans work in partners and figure out these plans make your product and go home with a toolbox and it was like such a cool it almost felt like santa's workshop that second day where they were building these things together it was just so collaborative and that that we were able to do it um during the pandemic when everyone felt so isolated it just felt good um so we're hoping for more we're hoping for we're going to time them a little bit closer to you know maximum capacity for vaccines so that we're not you know fighting the tide too much uh, but we're thinking father daughter uh we're thinking framing hand tools and sharpening tools um and of course more women women's builds um so i'm really excited about it that's super exciting. Um, 16 women. That's, uh, that's awesome that you, that you got the word out and there, and then you had that turnaround. Um, I think it was last year. It might've even been the year before on the podcast. I had Heather on, um, she owns Thompson Johnson Woodworks. And she said, you know, the most common complaint she has is that women will come to her and say like, I have no experience. I'll work for free. And it's like, no, nobody's working for free. Everybody starts with no experience, you know? Okay. Maybe your dad was a builder and you come and maybe you do have some more experience, but like nobody has an experience. So nobody should be working for free. And so the fact that you're offering workshops where if somebody wanted to just try it out and say like, okay, is this, is this even a direction I want to go in? Like, am I afraid to try this? That They could go to a workshop and just, you know, first hands-on experience. My high school had shop class all through high school. So I built mm -hmm. a lot of stuff all, all through high school. And then Penn State was a, um, you had to build your own models and stuff in the wood shop. So we had five years of wood shop as well while we were in school. So I, I used a lot of tools um, in the shop and we did Habitat for Humanity type stuff over the summers with my grandfather. Um, but that was invaluable experience for me, yeah. right? Because if you had never done that, like you, you don't know what tools are out there or how, mm -hmm. like how you might do it. And it can be a little intimidating. So I love that you're opening the workshops for, for people, um, to come and try it out. But it's fun to me to hear you guys talk about offering these classes, because it's something that I think doesn't really exist all that much. And especially, um, I'd love to see you guys uh, maybe in the future partner with Emu and start doing the passive pods, right? So doing training in the Wait. state of Maine with their <laughs> passive pod workshop is taking builders who have been working in the field and saying, hey, there are different ways that we're doing things now, especially with the goals that you guys are getting with Passive House. Your air sealing has to be on point, right? Yeah. There yeah. are so many things that you guys are doing with tapes or sealants or just the way that you put things together to make it easier to, um, to air seal. I don't know if it was you or Jespa that said it during the BS and beer, like it's the difference between, you know, wrapping a pitchfork or wrapping a pitchfork <laughs> in a box, right? <laughs> like <Yep. laughs> sometimes the way you make these details, you can make them really easy for yourself or you can make them extremely difficult. Uh, and so, um, 
and it's it's kind of fun to think that you know if workshops become a thing that you guys do that you could also be offering you know for for other people to do training locally in in some better building practices right because that's what we're all going for I mean you guys are at the the I I don't want to say top end but you're at the forefront of what people are doing for air sealing and so um you know, what are some of the, the things uh, that you guys are doing with Passive House Maine that you feel are a little bit different than, you know, the norm, right? Because you think Norway, when I think Norway, I think, man, you're kind of in the sticks of Maine, right? <laughs> out there. And so you don't think, oh, people are, are building Passive House, but clearly they are. You've, you know, you guys have built a business in, in your area. So, um, What's different about what you guys are are doing, do you think? Um, I guess one of the things is we're very, very careful about the materials that we choose to work with. And when we collaborate with architects, we, we are definitely like pushing to use certain things and not others. Um, we're especially focusing on toxicity and VOC and off gassing and that sort of thing, as well as the embodied carbon of those um, materials. Uh, We use a lot of engineered floor joists for our constructions. (laughs) And they never go in the floor, which is kind of hilarious. But um, it's another like kind of little gimmick. Uh, We do tons of wood siding, which uh, isn't as common in this area. Uh, we get a lot more of um, vinyl or or like a cement fiber or whatever. Yeah, you know. Um, and we definitely uh, use roughs on whenever possible. Um, so it's it's a lot of it is material choice, I think. And do you think that is um, based on where you guys are in Maine? Because my understanding of Passive House is that they are definitely performance-based metric, right? So when you're doing Passive House, you're really trying to build performance metrics. Is Passive House starting to get more into the materials toxicity and uh, embodied carbon? Or is that just something that you at Maine Passive House feel like that's really important to your company and sort of a non-starter for you guys? I think it's it's us. I think Maine Passive is just very um, attentive to it. We're we're part of the Nessie community, and that's definitely a conversation that um, they've been carrying since I think 2019 or so. Um, their keynote speaker was from Bensonwood, I believe. Um, but that it's definitely something we care about for sure. I'm not sure that the Passive House standards really reflect the choice of materials. Um, you can you can build a really high performance house that has worse embodied carbon than a code built one um, just based on those materials you choose. So I, I don't think it I don't think we've caught up in the standard yet. Yeah. Um, and that's I love passive house. I love a lot of the standards for what they've done for the building industry, right? There's these metrics, there's these things that you work towards and you achieve. I mean, five years ago, we weren't talking about embodied carbon. It's Mm -hmm. something that we're like, oh, all of a sudden we need to really reflect on that. We're lucky in the sense that we're in Maine. So we have access to a lot of that stuff, like roughs on lumber and working with local lumber yards, which is only good for our economy too. Right. Um, I love what Lee is doing to try to connect like this lumber yard sells this type of material, you know, or they, they make, uh, clapboards and this guy makes, you know, roughs on 
flooring for board framing or, you know, I had a client that had a, um, had an aversion to petroleum products. So we had to try to get as much plastics and glues out of it, which really makes you start to think about like, oh man, what is in every single one of these building materials, right? So then we've had people on the BS and beer show from the living building challenge and the red list. And that makes you dive even deeper, like, oh man, what's in this. And so it's, <laughs> for me, I find that absolutely fascinating. Maybe it's the chemistry thing. Like what is yeah, this made right. of? Like what, what is in this? How, what's in our air? What's in our building materials? Like what if we just like, we've created this thing so it doesn't grow mold. So it has no but the fungicide is like super toxic. So we're not growing mold, but we're poisoning you in other ways. Like, it's just, <laughs> to, it's, it's fascinating to me. I think the last couple of years when this has started coming to the forefront has been even more exciting for me. I mean, I, I love design. I love being part of the architecture. I love doing energy models. You know, I think like, how do you design a house and not do an energy model and not know what your target is, right? Like, how, right. Do, how do you not know where you're going? <laughs> Yes. Um, so I, I love all of that stuff. And then to add on to it, the toxic material. So to hear you guys say that that's something that your company kind of stands on. So, so I'm going to ask the, the hard question too, which people always say like, well, how do you get people to buy into that? Um, <laughs> so I think when they come to you, they hear main passive house, they probably know who you guys are already. Right. And you do work with some architects and without some architects, but I feel like if you're working with an architect, they know who you are too. So they're bringing clients to you who, who are, who want to go down this route. Um, my response to that question is I just talk about why it's important in terms that other people understand, you know, comfort, health, durability, that stuff. Yes. And I just don't do the other things anymore. Right. When you sort of stop doing the other things, then you find the people who, who also have a similar mind frame to you. Is that what you, you know, your experience with, with a lot of the clients that you've worked with, or have you had to try to convince them to using uh, engineered floor joists hanging off the walls instead <laughs> of in the floor? <laughs> um, well, okay. So there's a few different kind of scenarios that I think that we see with our clients. It's either they're very interested in building science. So they're willing to pay for and take recommendations in accordance with what we're recommending, you know, and, and they're, they're just so into the building science. So there are people like that and it's so much fun to work with them. Um, it's also fascinating because you end up, they end up telling you how to do your job half the time. <laughs> and then there's people who, uh, have a lot, we are, this is one of the things that we're talking about as a company is making passive house affordable is, is crucial because the technology and the the building science is so good and so important that the people who really need it, the people that that are living in these cold, drafty houses and can't afford to fix them, don't have access to them, to passive houses um, where the occupants are living comfortably and breathing clean air, you know, and and part of our responsibility as a company is is to make passive house more accessible. Uh, that's what we believe, um, and so we're we're trying really hard um, to find a way because 
The second category of client that we tend to get is the, the really wealthy, um, and they love the craftsmanship or craftspersonship that we uh, display, and, and they love the added comfort. You know, that's what they're thinking about is my house is super comfortable. I never feel a draft. I never feel cold by my windows. That's awesome. Um, they're not really thinking about the environment or the energy savings, and they have the money to pay for $300, $400 per square foot. Um, which tends to be an average for a passive house. Um, so we're talking a lot about structuring our business model to build for these people who can afford it um, and then bankroll off of those projects more affordable ones that are accessible to other people. Um, because I think that's really where we want to want to go. You know, we're, we're not ignoring the fact that there's a market already. We want to participate in that market, but we also want to give back in a way. Um, so there's two types. Uh, there's probably three. I don't remember what the third one was, but <laughs> I think that's a, that's a. I think that's where we're, we're all at, right? So you have you have the we'll call them the living building challenge people, right? Who have mm -hmm. to change the field of building. And then you have all the people who benefit from those changes by saying like, okay, we've built this six different ways. We now know which is the most cost-effective way to do this. Like this is a simpler system or this is, you know, whatever. Um, for a number of years, I've been doing a, um, a plan set for the uh, self-help homeownership program with a community action agency and those homeowners with a site supervisor build their own house but like they're out there they're dense back in their walls right I mean they're they're using more environmentally friendly materials um I I had to jump up and down for a little while to get them off of oil boilers but I'm like mm -hmm. we're back drafting these things right they're so good at dense backing and they're so good at sealing these houses that their blower door is like 250 for yeah. a 1200 square foot house with a full basement. And so we're backdrafting the heating systems. And so you're putting a hole in the wall and we're defeating the whole purpose of everything we did. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, moving on from that to, you know, heat pumps or a steel combustion system or anything that, you know, that's better, but it's exciting to see, you know, that they're really getting into it because they're in a position too where they need to not have bills that are yeah. astronomical once they're done and i think that's the important part to to know and to realize towards the end is you know single family home ownership is not cheap so if we're not providing houses that are better and affordable to live in you know and maybe even you know with the passive house metric is maybe it's a little bit more expensive for the first owner but if we stop building disposable housing right. then it'll be more cost effective for the second, third, fifth generation owner, right? And that they become legacy properties that get handed down that aren't falling apart in 20 years, right? In 20 years, it gets handed down or gets sold and the next owner has all of those same benefits, right? Yeah. And the only downside to that, uh, which is when I was working as a, a energy or doing a lot more energy work, I saw uh, my first and only ever double envelope house, <laughs> And the owners had no idea how it actually worked. It was built in the seventies. It didn't come with any instructions. And I mean, it's not, it's not really uh, that what we, how we've learned, it's not the best system anyway. Um, but 
it works in a very specific way. Like the thing in the front is not a patio that you hang out on. It is a <laughs> solar heating system. And, you know, the, the crawl space and the vents in the back are meant to draw the air through the house, right? That big fan in the ceiling has a very specific purpose. And they, so they, they just had all kinds of problems with this house because they had no idea how it actually yeah. worked. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, <laughs> I was going to say, that's the only scary part about turning over high performance houses. Um, oh, yeah. I feel like the, the QR code in the back of the mechanical room door that like adds maintenance to your calendar automatically and tells you how all the systems run would be critical for Perfect. house turnover. Yeah. We, we do uh, homeowners manuals. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously they're paper. So they're probably just going to get lost one day, but the, the QR like, code at least you do the manual, right? Like so many yeah. people don't even get the manual with the house. So even the first owners don't know how the ERV works, right? And they shut it out like in passive house. I'm sure that you have some kind of mechanical ventilation system in every house that you do because they're so tight. And if they don't operate the ventilation system, they could have issues. <laughs> and so, um, and I just like the idea of the QR code and the maintenance schedule because it's really easy to forget to replace a filter or to like, oops, I didn't call the guy this year to clean out the, you know, if you have heat pumps, the compressor, right? And then you had a mouse that thought this was a great place and it built a you know, nest in your outdoor compressor and now you've got coil issues or, or you didn't realize that the reason something was flashing was because, you know, maybe you had a bad compressor and you had a Freon leak and, you know, it's empty and you're using a ton of energy to run something that has the low, like has a 6,000 KBTU load. Right. Yeah. And you're like, why is this cost so much? It's <laughs> supposed to be, you know, so for me, I think mechanicals are just the next step of, of understanding for people, but we need to make it easy. And that's the point of passive house, right? Is that you have very few mechanicals and it's supposed to be really, really streamlined for people to use and really quiet and all those yeah, there, things. There are more um, Wi-Fi phone compatible products coming out now too. I think it's just going to get easier. Yeah. Are you guys getting anything from Europe that's different than the systems that that people have been using? Because right in the passive house community, I feel like maybe you have access to newer technology before the rest of us. Like <laughs> anything new coming across the board that we haven't heard about yet? Like I as I talk to more mechanical people, because for some reason I'm oddly fascinated by mechanical things and they're starting to talk about, you know. <laughs> A couple of years ago, heat pumps were like, this is the end all be all. It's the next solution. It's this great thing. And now we're like, oh, well, maybe having all these refrigerant lines running through places isn't the best idea. So, um, you know, I know there's some CO2 systems that are maybe coming across the pond at some point or um, any other. I know you guys use the Lunos. Yep. We systems. use Lunos. Yeah. Um, Zender just did a, they have the self-contained um, ductless unit that just started out on the market. That's pretty cool. I haven't compared it to the Lunos yet. We haven't used it. Um, they also have the Q model, which is the one that's compatible with your phone. Um, and then there's in Canada, um, the company I know about, I know there's a couple up there, but the company I know about is Mina Air and they have um, 
they do ventilation and uh, supply air heating in a single unit um, instead of having heat pumps and your ventilation unit. You're, you're preheating the air as it comes into the room or pre-cooling the air, I guess. Um, have you guys gotten to use one of those yet? I, I've heard a couple of people have tried to spec them and get them into product projects, but I haven't heard of anybody who's been successful with it yet. Um, it seems like a great technology. And I know that they, they do something similar. Like that was the original passive house idea, right? Yes, that you could yes. just preheat the, the ventilation air and that would be enough. Now I know our climate zones here, especially in Maine, we can't quite get there. Like we right. haven't quite, but if Canada is doing it, we should be able to. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's, it was surprising to me to find out that most of the numbers that you see on your passive house, at least the German standard are based on preheating your supply air. Um, Cause I was, I, it was always in my head that it was just one of these arbitrary things, but that kind of made it click for me. Um, <laughs> but this place, we've actually hit the numbers. I think that we need for the size of these systems on quite a few of our houses. Um, we just don't have local distributors or installers. Um, we've asked our, our plumbing and heating guys, if they'd be willing to, to put one of these in and none of them are comfortable like tackling it the first time. So that's yeah, I think problem. that's that's been I think a problem. I think that's a problem kind of across the board as far as mechanical systems go yeah. everywhere. Is you know even even with us with with putting in heat pumps is you know then they want to put one in every room and they're concerned right. about distribution oversized and all and I'm the like, time. My energy model says this house has like an eleven thousand BTU load, like yeah. total. So no, I don't want to put a 36,000 PTU yeah. unit in here. And one thing I think that people are forgetting is we like our bedrooms to be a little bit cooler, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of okay if it's not quite as warm and no, the mechanical system isn't redistributing the air, but it is a little bit, you know, it's making some someone of a dent. And so we often will put up some backup heat in the bathrooms because who wants to yeah, be cold in the right. bathroom? Right. But otherwise, you know, people are like, Oh, what do you mean? You only, I was, well, this house has three heat pumps. Technically is one in the basement for moisture issues. Doesn't run very often. We have one on the first floor that heats the house. And we have one on the second floor that cools the house on those days when it's <laughs> like, you know, really humid. It's not even hot. It's just humid. And so it runs <laughs> a little bit more. Right. And they're like, how does that work? And I'm like, it works fine. I've never had a complaint. <laughs> like it just, you know, all the other surfaces stay warm or stay cool if you shade properly and you orient the house the right direction and you've got mm -hmm. the right kind of windows. And, yep. and I'm so glad that triple pane windows are now making it here at a, a totally competitive cost. And yeah. the only downside is having to wait, which usually is is fine um in the original timeline until you accidentally made a mistake or want to add another window that's when it gets a little tricky that's tricky i know i'm actually reviewing a window schedule right now for a job and it's like meticulous like i won't do it too late at night i won't do it like uncaffeinated i have to be focused <laughs> it's so important too because it's uh we have one one house that it's almost done now and um we have european tilt and turn windows um that we got from steve at performance building supply they're 
absolutely phenomenal. And I don't know how we missed this. I looked at it, he looked at it, the builder looked at it. And we still ended up with two windows that are next to each other, but not mulled together. And they're the mm -hmm. same size. So they said, oh, you have two of this window, right? And so they open the same way instead of <laughs> <laughs> like this. And it was like, oh no. And it's right over the kitchen sink. So one window can't open Aww. to the middle. And we're like, oh no. <laughs> so we, we have since gotten the replacement window. It's totally fine. Um, looks great. We just have an extra window kicking around now. <laughs> we'll use it in another project. It's oh, yeah. not a problem. But I was like, how did we miss that? I didn't even notice. Like, yep, we have two of those windows. That's great. Uh, and um, this was a, a an interesting thing for me is the way that they indicate the swing of the window is opposite for U.S. Yes. manufacturers and European manufacturers. Yes. That oh, yes. took... That took me a minute. I'm like, why are all these windows backwards? And then I'm like, oh, they're not backwards. That's just their graphic. So then yes. I had to change the graphic on the plans to make sure that they were shown opening in the same direction. So they didn't all get installed <sighs> in the wrong places. That is so nice of you. Like right now I'm, I'm like, I'm like drawing the swing out for myself because the architect's showing the exterior pointing toward the hinge and I'm getting interior pointing towards, pointing the, towards opening. the handle. <laughs> I'm like, hey. And you're like, wait, is that, is that the right? Wait, yes. that Okay. That's the okay, right. We're good. Okay. <laughs> right. And it's so funny. How did window schedules become so challenging? Or um, for me, I changed the the normal convention for for labeling windows is you know letters and numbers or whatever mm -hmm. and um and different types of windows and i label them based on the side of the house they're on yes and yep. a number so it's like south one south two south three so it's pretty evident where they're supposed to go yes <laughs> which I actually only started doing because I could enter them in my energy model. That that's way, what I right? was going to say. Is this about energy modeling? Because that's what it we did too. <laughs> it is. It's this convention, but it's made it actually really easy on the job site too, because mm -hmm. then they, they know the sides of the house based on the solar orientation. And so they're like, oh, these are South windows. Okay. They go in this wall. And so yep. It actually made sense on the job site as well as for the energy model, but I started doing it for the energy model because I was like, <laughs> I need to know which side of the house this is on. And I don't want to have to look it up every time. I'm like, which window is G15? Like, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to me. So, yeah. Well, I think that's sure. really cool. You're so integrated into the energy modeling portion of it and, and the building side of it that you've made it streamlined in that way. For me, um, I went to architecture school and then I worked in Washington, DC for a couple of years. And then I moved to Maine and I was like, you know, I worked for, for a high-end residential designer in DC. They didn't care as much about it. So I moved to Maine and I thought, I really am, I'm, I'm really interested in this. Um, and so I want to work for an architect who does more energy related work. And so then, and then the market got really bad in 2009. And so I went and did energy auditing and more energy work on the side as I started my own practice. And I felt like that was the point at which it clicked for me on how to design with energy in mind from the very mm -hmm. beginning versus designing something and then trying to figure out how to make it efficient afterwards, which seemed counterintuitive. So then I'm like, if that's how I'm designing, how does that then translate to what I'm drawing and indicating to someone else? And yeah. so, um, 
Doesn't mean my drawings are perfect by any means, but I've at least <laughs> adapted a couple of conventions that I think make it easy to, to understand, you know, that there's the orientation was important for the energy model. You know, the installation yeah. is important and um, whether the client hires me to come and do construction administration and be on site or not, I go to the job site anyway, because that's how you learn and how you hear. And like this detail was bad or this detail worked out great. This is awesome. So um, you learn something new on every project, or at least yeah. I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I feel like I talked way more than you did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you guys are working on or that you're super excited about that's coming up for Maine Passive House? Um, is the, there's a passive house conference. I know we're all excited for, for being able to get back together in person. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But that'd be great. I mean, I, we're, we're, we've got a couple of really cool projects. There's one coming our way that has a three-story bookshelf, which I think everybody's stoked about. It also has all those like tree houses and cool like patios that are obviously going to be the first thing to go in the estimate, but um, it <laughs> looks awesome. <laughs> but we are, we're expanding a lot as a company. We're doing a lot of like in-house cleanup um, and and making systems for ourselves to be more efficient because I think as a company, we're, we're hoping to get bigger bigger and better so that's exciting right. we're trying to compete with all of the other people out there who are building lots more right as just like you said about your mission to to make it more affordable and more sustainable and you know that's part of the reason why I offer semi-customizable plan sets too is mm -hmm. like you don't have to spend all this money in design but what does it include it includes the plans which are designed for this climate zone to be better you know to be uh you know, maybe it's not passive house. Maybe you're not going for that target, but it's definitely pretty good house. It could be net zero if you wanted to. It's definitely going to think about thermal performance, comfort, the energy you'll use to live in it. Um, but it also gets me to do consulting during construction because the one thing that gets missed is, you know, you have a builder who takes it and runs with it and then they decide to change maybe one little thing, which would be fine normally, but is, you know, a, an issue in a high performance house. Like, you know, you can't just swap a cellulose for a rock wool. Right. You know, there, there are some things that you, you can do and some things that you can't do. And especially right now, we've had to be a little bit more flexible than I would say I normally am. Um, not that I think... Uh, uh, architecture terms, you know, some, I, I'm not, this is my design and you can't change it, but you know, sometimes with the performance details, I'm like, this is the, this is the detail. And, you know, we, we want to do it this way. We don't want to value engineer out our building envelope because we can't change right. that. Um, right. But that, uh, we have to be a little bit more flexible right now with availability. It was always more cost-effective or in general, it seemed more cost-effective to do a double stud wall. And now two by fours are $8 a two by four. It is not cost effective to, to build the two by fours. And it's like, okay, well, how do I get the same performance level with something that's different, right? You guys have been doing your Larson trusts or your <laughs> yeah. engineered floor joints. <laughs> what's, the, what's the biggest challenge about basically hanging your building envelope off the side of the house? <laughs> Uh, there's a there's a little bit of um, air barrier uh, that you kind of have to think about when you get to where your um, top plates meet your roof line and all that stuff. There's a little bit of that. Um, 
hitting the studs when you screw through the TJIs. <laughs> it's so basic. <laughs> That's just carpentry 101. Oh, you gotta gosh. hit the studs. Um, <laughs> that I, when we were living in New York, I had a passive house friend who was building his own house. And I can't remember if they used TJIs or not. And, and he had or if he did his own system and he definitely built out, he had the Mento and he built out, you know, from the outside. And there was something about it not being straight over two stories or something. There was some, like it could get a little funky with how tall it was. When they're really long. Yeah. (laughs) When they're really long. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's funny. That's funny. So, and that my friend Bob in Vermont has been doing a lot of similar Larson trust. How do we mm-hmm. make this? Like, what's the easiest way to do it? Um, so it's been kind of fun to watch everybody uh, rethink the wall system and what's yeah. like, h- how do we do it so that it's easy, that it's cost-effective, that people get it, that we're making these durable details that last a long time. Um, yeah. But- maybe some like whiz kid out there can like figure out how, we can take regular material wastage and make it into a Larson truss because I feel like plywood scraps are really common on a job site. Like maybe we can just like everybody ship your plywood scraps to one place. That made me think of this crazy idea. (laughs) So, um, so I belong to um, a thing called scrap dogs, which is Mm -hmm. a local composting. Um, So they come and they pick up our food waste to try to divert food waste from the waste stream because Mm -hmm. people are like, oh, it just breaks down. That's really fine. But it actually turns to soup and makes things harder to break down in the waste stream. So taking our food waste out of the waste stream is actually really helpful. And so they come, they pick it up, they turn it into compost, and then they bring you compost back, right? So you get compost for oh, it. how nice you just need somebody to be the scrap dog for construction scrap somebody who just comes around they've got a big old hauler and they just come through and they pick up all the scrap and then they turn that scrap into you know it's the same with the people somewhere in the south who just their city might have even been in new orleans the city wouldn't recycle glass so they just started picking up everybody's glass and they turned it into glass sand and all kinds of other stuff and they started recycling it like yeah just need an out of the box thought there you go there's a whole nother business for you guys you <laughs> hire somebody with a dump trailer to just go around to everybody's job site you don't have to um you don't have to take it to either the recycling facility if you do that or take it to uh you know the the other people who are taking it to the dump right uh, somebody comes and picks it up. Uh, and that's always the thing that I love about like Bensonwood and some of the panelized companies is their offcuts that they have, they put in a pile and they use that for blocking and other things, mm-hmm. right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, the idea of zero waste in the panelized factory is, and things they can't use putting into the, to, into the wood stove and, you know, uh, or um, in Vermont, you know, cause they're, they're very backwoods in Vermont. They put all their, their scraps, I think at the end of the driveway and all the neighbors who all have wood stoves just picked yeah. it up and burned it. Right. If you yep. got wood siding, it doesn't have anything in it. If you got, you know, regular lumber. So, so the oh, neighbors yeah. were all super happy with their job site because they heated their homes for 
Not that we want to promote a lot of wood heating, but lots of people have that. So I guess it's a better use than than other things. But that's a great idea. You should start that little side business. Oh gosh, me and all my free time. Right? That's that's the problem. I'm full of all kinds of ideas. got all the ideas. I love the idea of the QR code. I need somebody Mm -hmm. else to actually make it happen. Here's your idea. Somebody do it. (laughs) Help me. Help me. So that would be awesome. Zero waste scrap dogs or for plywood scraps and then turn them into Larson trusses or, or some odd version of a tea stud. Uh, yes. Yes. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I know you guys are, you're busy, so you probably have a million things to do as you just said, with all your free time. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you coming on and just chatting today. Uh, it's always good for me to hear, uh, what other people are doing in the field and what, you know, what your company stands for and says like, this is, you know, this is a non-starter. This is what we think the market needs. This is what we think people should be asking for. Um, and just highlight that. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. You're welcome to come back anytime and talk about <laughs> anything you want to. Um, and definitely reach out if if you're planning another event and you want to come on and, and promote your, your event coming up. Um, I'd love to have you back. Awesome. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.